You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're looking at your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. And today's a little factoid, I'm going to talk about something called the Mandela Effect. Uh, have you heard of this, Glenn? No. Okay, so the Mandela Effect it gets its name from, um, I guess there's a huge group of people that could swear that they remember hearing back in the 80s that Nelson Mandela died in prison. Um, you know, but you know I, I do remember that. You do remember that. <laughs> But he obviously didn't die in prison because he got out and became president of South Africa and, you know, died just a couple of years ago. Um, what? He died? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so I thought he died years ago. There's a, it's this thing that people are like totally baffled that the world isn't the way they remember it to be because they have such a strong memory mm. of it being such a certain way. So, uh few questions for you and then we'll we'll kind of review um so everyone listening play along and then we'll review see how everybody does at the end um mm, all right. oscar meyer the brand that makes you know bologna and stuff and hot dogs how do you spell oh, yes. oscar oscar meyer oh boy uh i would spell it well o-s-c-a-r-m-e-y-e-r okay now, uh, you know who Uncle Moneybags is, the Monopoly guy? Yes. Does he have a monocle? <laughs> well, funny. Um, only when you said the monocle did I picture the monocle. <laughs> I did not think he had a monocle until you said it. So you're going to go with no? I, I didn't picture him with a monocle until okay. you said it. Do you remember the kids' books, the Berenstein Bears? Berenstein Bears. Berenstein Bears. How do you spell Berenstein or Berenstein or whatever Stain. it is? Berenstein. Yeah, B-E-R-E-N. And then this is the weird part. It's S-T-E-H-E-N maybe. There's okay. a weird. There's a weird extra spelling in there. Curious George, another kid's book. Does Curious yes. George have a tail? Ha <laughs> I, ha. I assumed he does. Okay. And then Kit Kat, the candy bar. Yes. Is there a dash in between Kit and Cat? Uh, that's not fair. I'm, I've got Kit Kat right here sitting on the table. <laughs> <laughs> ah. So, rats. no, no. No. Okay. So you're correct with the Kit Kat. There's no dash in Kit Kat. Uh, Oscar Meyer is M A Y E R. Ah, Meyer. You're also right. Um, Uncle Moneybags does not have a monocle, but Berenstein, I, I, I it's so weird because you know I'll look at actual pictures of the book online and think that it's wrong, and then go to the kids' bookshelf and pull a copy off the bookshelf and it's it's uh, B E R E N and then S T A I N stain as in. You know, stain. what happens when you okay. spill ink? Stain. Curious, and then finally, Curious hmm. George does not have a tail. Hmm. Yeah, I would have guessed, guessed he did, but... 
Yeah, and I with the thing with stain, I mean, I I thought there was a weird spelling to it though, like H A. But you're probably right. It's just that I. Good, good. Those are those are good. Yeah, those are those are kind of cool. And the Berenstein was for me was the one where because I I mean for Mandela I I was never one of those people that had heard he was dead or thought I had heard he was dead or anything like that. Well, until you know he more recently died, not in the eighties, died in prison. Right. Um, but the Berenstein was was the one that really clicked for me as as something I grew up with, and then I had you know the books for my kids. And then I, I see this story, and it says stain, and I was like, "No, that's wrong." I remember it being <laughs> e e i n. Um, now you go back and you look through all the copies of the old books, and sure enough, a i n. So anyway, interesting psychological thing. Or if you subscribe to the other theory related to this concept, uh, it's proof that um, we. You know, if you remember it a different way, it's because it did happen that way, but changed because at some point you switched, uh, you know, realities to a different parallel universe. Yeah, that one works too. I like that. That works too. That's the Rick and Morty theory. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So anyway, uh, that's our our little factoid uh, for this week. Um, But Glenn, we're going to finish up uh, our discussion about the... Yes, the International Conference for Forensic Inference and Statistics. Inference and Statistics. Right. Okay. Now, all right. Now, I talked a little bit about it last week, so I'll assume the listeners have heard, or at least heard last week's. But, yes, in, in quick summary, conference been around for about 30 years, but they have it every three years, so it's the 10th conference, and it was here in Minneapolis. And the, the we talked about the workshops last time, and then there, there are lectures. So there were lectures on Wednesday, Thursday, and half a day on Friday. I was only able to attend the Wednesday lectures, but I, I did get a lot out of it. And I jumped around through to lots of different rooms. There were three different main sessions going on. There was the foundational principles. So these are general concepts relatable to all the different disciplines. Then there, then there were some ones that were more focused on DNA and some ones more focused on uh, firearms, but then they'd switch to a couple of other different topics. There are lots of different people from different backgrounds here, but mainly attendees are statisticians, students, researchers, a lot of people from CSAFE, the Center for Statistics uh, you know, in Ames, Iowa, in partnership oh, yeah, yeah. with... Co- Carnegie Mellon and uh, UC Irvine, you know, they got the big $20 million grant to build all the models. Had a chance to meet some of those people and see their work and how far they've gotten in the last three years. And? Well, I guess we'll be waiting. We'll be waiting a little bit. However, uh, I am going to talk about some good stuff. The model, it's ready, right? Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's ready. No, it's not ready. Um, but uh, they are—they're working. They're working along. Okay. Yep, they're working. All right. So um, one of the things I wanted to start uh, talking about was their opening uh, plenary session, 
And this was a presentation by Brendan Max. He's the chief public defender for the Forensic Science Unit in Cook County. And he's been, he has a group of four or five attorneys, and they've been behind all of these challenges yes. coming out of Cook County and Illinois, but particularly towards Chicago Police Department. And we talked a little bit about some of the things on the show a couple of, maybe a year or more ago. About a year ago, yeah. Right. So I'll, I need to give a little background here. So Brennan talked in this presentation how he would do these pretrial conferences with the police officers there, and he would get them in a room and start asking them questions about forensic science. Is it subjective or is it objective? What's your methodology? What studies have been done? What Are you familiar with the term contextual bias? Are you familiar with ETL drawer? Are you familiar with black box? You know, all the foundational stuff about fingerprint science and what he had been running into was that and as we found out later that the police officers who were fingerprint examiners had been advised by their internal counsel that they don't have to participate in the interview if any questions other than facts related to the case or what they did in the case were asked so any question right so you can ask questions like what did you do how did you process this and what were your conclusions did you write a report but you can't ask them anything about error rates bias standards swig fast anything outside the case file and they have a right to say uh, i'm not going to answer that question and in fact if they say too many times not going to answer that question the attorneys are just going to call the 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 conference off and walk out of the room which they had done all right so reading these these notes coming out of out of these interviews are are pretty fascinating because you end (laughs) up with statements like are you familiar with contextual bias I'm not going to answer that question. Are you familiar with error rate studies? Yeah, I know there are some out there. Well, can you tell me about them? I'm not going to answer that question. And in fact, if you ask me another question about that, this interview is over. That's how these have been going. So this has caused a huge stir, and they continue to file these motions of trying to exclude the evidence in, in Cook County. And they've been bringing in other experts, filing affidavits. Uh, they've approached other people to you know come into this and and, and, and try to assist. And when I say they, sorry, uh, the Cook County public defenders are bringing in outside experts to challenge you know the fingerprint evidence. Now, conversely, Illinois State Police has been very cooperative, and they really haven't been challenging them at the same in the same way. You know, they might ask them a few tough questions, and you get one of these attorneys at trial, they're going to know their stuff. Yeah. But, you know, for the most part, you know, they've been pretty respectful of what was happening at the state level in the state lab. However, and here's the thing that he showed, the lab director had sent a letter to Brendan basically saying – we heard what you're doing with Chicago, and we know that you've been asking you and our examiners some of these questions. We're going to start doing what they're doing. So Wait, if what, you, what? yeah, this is the the Illinois State yeah. Police Crime Lab yeah. Director. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And so you know, Brendan, you know, <clears throat> showed parts of this letter and the strategy of if you ask us anything out of our case file, we're going to tell our people they don't have to sit, you know, through this interview. Now, this is all very, very new. But Brendan, you know, wrote the guy back and said, "Are you sure that this is um, what you want to do? This is right. I mean, this is what you're you're telling me that 
If we ask them any foundational questions, we do our job, make them uncomfortable a little bit in a pretrial, you're going to you know tell them it's okay to, to walk out of that interview. And that's he, he affirmed it. He, he doubled down on it. So Nick, Nick how? Yeah, uh, it's how the, is it making <laughs> the expert uncomfortable to ask them questions relating to the thing they're an expert in? You mean the scientific foundation of what they they applied, which is basically Brendan's whole point is okay. Here's what's insane. My job is to challenge the foundational reliability of what you have, you know, make sure that you know the limits of this, you know, what procedures did you use, if you have bias problems, or if you are familiar with bias, did you use blind testing, just all the things a defense attorney is supposed to do. We all know that's what they're supposed to do. Okay. So they can't ask them these questions during pretrial, so they're, they're basically saying, ask me during trial. Okay, well, when they get to trial... What, what they did, at least in Cook County now, is the prosecutors now filing motions that you can't ask them those questions during trial. You basically can't cross-examine the expert because it's too far afield. It's only the, the issue at hand and has nothing to do with you know, the case details. So the prosecutors there are telling them you can't ask foundational science questions in the pretrial. And now we're filing motions to prevent you from asking them during trial. How? What the, <laughs> oh, good lord! It is. Yeah, well, there, there's a reason that they are fighting this vigorously, and I. This is going to get. This is going to get nasty. Yeah, it, it was kind of shocking. Well, good job, Illinois, for making me take the defense attorney's side in something. <laughs> Yes, putting the ill-advised in Illinois. <laughs> oh, God. Yes. <laughs> putting the ill in Illinois. Was that was that a line from that defense attorney, or is that you? No, oh, no, no. I was just thinking about how bad this is. Sorry. Right, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just such an ill-advised strategy. It's just, it's crazy. I mean, the... They had actually gained the respect of these defense attorneys by knowing this stuff and being able to answer these questions, right. you know, questions well. And now, by playing hide the ball, I, 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 this is going to backfire. This is going to backfire terribly. And wait till the media at some point gets a hold of this. I mean, this is this is not going to be good for their reputation. No, no, it's not. Oh my god. Well, anyway. But, well, I, I, what will be interesting is to see if this, in some way, works its way into other states. Plus, you know, plus you and I have talked about this before. Why would you not want to ha- know th- those questions during a pretrial? Because you know what you're going to get asked at the actual trial. It's I mean, pre, pre, a good right. pretrial actually makes me less nervous for a trial. And And more to the point. It's somebody asking you questions about fingerprints. Yes. You're right, yes. Well, not only that you're an expert, but it's about fingerprints. Like the most fascinating subject that there is to talk about. You have yes. an opportunity to talk to somebody about this. How can you resist the urge to be like, all right, here, sit down. Let me talk for the next three hours about fingerprints. Well, therein lies the part of the but... problem is that you might be dealing with, quote unquote, some experts who maybe can't talk about fingerprints very long or know the research very well. Right. That may be the issue. I, I've been, 
I've been thinking about this recently in in wondering if you know over time if there's been this like um reduction in the expectations and the expertise of of forensic science uh, scientists uh over the past you know 10-15 years or so where to some extent lab directors are more seeing you know the forensic scientists as just text to plow through evidence uh you know bodies to reduce the backlog and um you know the police brass is seeing it the same way and kind of being reflected in the attitudes of you know it, it's the only important thing is you getting the backlog down it doesn't mm, matter yeah. how you do it who does it um whether it's done well or not or whether it's done at all as long as it's not on the backlog then it's it's that's that's the goal uh and to go along with that you're going to get less training less time for you know article discussions less pay uh because you're just you're just text running through samples yeah, I mean, obviously, you're right. I mean, certain places have you know, a, a less than stellar model. It's about production. Other agencies, you know, focus on these and have a nice balance between the two. I think, you know, I think a big problem stems from, of course, you know, paramilitarization of these organizations. Yes. And we have, especially in the Midwest, when you look at Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, you know, you have these crime labs, but as you move up and through these crime labs, you start getting into, you know, ranks of, you know, police officers. And I don't know, you know what the lab director in Illinois is. I don't know if they're a police officer. I know past directors had been police. And I, I just, this is a bad strategy. This is a very bad strategy. And I hope someone, I hope someone listening, I hope someone from ISP listening says, hey, this is not good. This is, this is going to backfire on us. We're going to look foolish. This is not a great approach. We should just meet yeah. this challenge head on, answer their questions, answer them well. They will go away. And if we can do better, then continue to do better in our agency and our policies. But... This these challenges will move in a different direction. As soon as they see there's nothing to see here, they will move along. Uh, when you start hiding the ball like this, they're going to look harder, and they're going to find something as they look harder and harder and harder. Yeah, it's gonna blow up at some point if you can't answer these questions on your day to day cases. You're eventually gonna be in court where you're, you're going to be forced to answer these questions on, you know, the case of your career. And if you haven't done it um, on every other case leading up to it, you're not going to be ready. It's, yeah, it's bad. Bad, 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 bad. Okay. Well, that was, uh, that was what kicked off the conference, and it was, it was really a fascinating talk. And, wow. Um, yes. The the next lecture I had a chance to see was one from Alex Biederman, and we've discussed Biederman and Taroni on the show before because they have a paper that you and I have talked about, decision theory and uh, you know, utility and, and a mathematical formula that they have discussed uh, and a logical framework for the application of utility in, in fingerprints. And so this was a really interesting talk that reviewed some of their past papers 
and talked about the concept of the utility and its framework and all this. I, I won't I won't go into it too in too much in depth. Although I will say at the end of the slide, I really liked uh, like this. What are those things called? QRC symbols? You know, the little yeah. weird pattern. Yep, yep. At the end, uh, he had a picture of a QRC symbol and said, "If you want a copy of this presentation, you know, get you know." take this qrc symbol and you can go online so you just take a photo of it click it go online and you, boom you got the slides right there like that, oh, that cool it was, it was very cool it was, it was very clever and oh, I should, here's I should... the thing though you got to put that yep. up at the beginning of the slide presentation uh-huh. so you don't have that guy with the uh with the ipad with like the 16 inch ipad yeah. holding it up yes. in the front yes. row yes. <laughs> i hate that guy too yes all right, so I should just mention a couple things. Alex Biederman, he's a professor at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. Uh, when I was there, he was, I think he was, I think he had finished his work or was just finishing, but I remember he took a fingerprint class when I was there, and I had a chance to, you know, just kind of see him develop this career. He's he's so bright, he's so such a mathematical thinker, and he's such a passionate advocate for pure forensic science and this infusion of math and statistics but here okay so here's the take-home message he talked about utility he talked about a logical framework he talked about all these things plugging in numbers into your utility function and how do we assign these numbers a lot of math and theory very theoretical but at the end he he said and here are the most two two most important words in this whole presentation consider all this stuff all this math all these right. statistics consider all this stuff before you act before you act meaning you must act in fact he he was quoting too a bit from uh, di finetti this italian mathematician and he di finetti had said something very similar before you choose here's all this information but at the end of the day you have to make a choice and what biederman was saying you have to act I'm not telling you plug all these numbers in and then don't do anything with it or be all confused. You ultimately have to make a decision. Understand the risks of the decision that you're making. Understand the utility of the decision. Understand the impact it could have in this case. Uh, you know, you've talked before, Eric, about utility. You know, if you've got ten IDs to one individual, you've got an eleventh on the same surface. Doesn't really add anything else. You know. Right. The, value of diminishing returns here uh, and then on the other hand you're actually just taking a risk of a potentially erroneous identification false positive and it's not adding anything else to the case maybe the only argument you could say is at least every print in the case was accounted for so there was no red herring print maybe there's some utility there you know but you balance these things together and ultimately what Biederman's saying before you act meaning you have to actually act and that in itself takes uh, some bravery to, to make a decision, but you have to make a decision. And I, I like that. I, yeah. I, that was um, – it was nice. It was an elegant way to say this is all theory and all theoretical, but you guys are forensic practitioners. You have to act and make a choice in a case. Meaning you, ha- you have to, to reach a conclusion. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. You have to you have to do something. You have to report something. And, you know, he gave this logical framework for how to go about doing that using math and, you know, some utility theory. But ultimately, he's, the emphasis should not be on the theory. It should ultimately be 
It's the theory and the logical framework that gets you to a choice or an action. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, the the next two talks I saw were from uh, students of Cedric and Chris Saunders. Uh, Cedric Newman and Chris Saunders are professors of statistics over at uh, South Dakota State University in South Dakota. And the, the <laughs> one is Cedric. Good place student. for it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I, I nearly said the SDSU is in Montana. I don't know why I was thinking it was Montana. <laughs> that would be great if South Dakota State University is located in Montana. All right, anyway. Surprisingly, um, right. <laughs> all right. So the one the one presentation from Cedric student Jesse Hendricks and the other one was Chris Saunders, Doug Armstrong. Both of them were new young students. Really impressive work. Uh, really impressive. And I'm going to combine. There's a third student. Uh, her name is Madeline. I'm not sure how you pronounce her last name. I never heard her say it. But if I'm looking at it, it looks like Ostamore. And uh, the three of them were from SDSU. And they... All, they gave these series of presentations on likelihood ratios. Pretty fascinating to me. I don't understand half the math, but breaking it down, Jesse had worked on this new version of Cedric's model. So Cedric had a statistical model. He had one that he made years ago for the FSS. The FSS went under. It's gone. He was working for Cogent. Cogent's, Cogent's gone. The model's gone. It's, it's somewhere else. So now he's working on a different model, and this <laughs> this one is pretty cool. And it ties into some other stuff that Doug was showing and some, some stuff Madeline, I guess, was showing, but I didn't get to see hers. Boy, in a nutshell, it's a very different approach to likelihood ratios. Okay. And one of the things I this conference really focused on with lots of different speakers from the Netherlands and all these different universities are what how that there are different ways to compute likelihood ratios. Most of the time what we're familiar with are what's called a score based likelihood approach. Yes. Most of the time that's what we've been exposed to. What Cedric and his group is working on something that gets a little closer to what a true likelihood ratio might be. And it's kinda cool. I don't understand. I don't even. I won't even fake to understand all of it. But what they do is that they generate all these likelihood ratios and these, these numbers. But what they do then is they start trying to deconvolve the likelihood ratio, and it's like looking at a bunch of data and finding equations that fit the data. There's a lot of high-end math stuff here that, you know, these data and these different components, each one has a different, like, vector, and they take the vector and de deconvolve it a bit and then find an equation that fits it and that describes it and then try to figure out what that component is doing. Is that the intra-source variability or is that uh, the variability with this other component or is this inter-source or is this some other thing that we don't know quite what's going on and that source evidence specific related blah 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 the main okay. thing is they're taking a bunch of data and they are separating out different components of the likelihood ratio so it's like taking it apart and then writing equations that fit the data and then modeling that with new likelihood ratios that they generate and in other words they're trying to instead of just taking a model and 
fitting a bunch of data to it. They're taking data and creating a model from it. That's like probably the best time. way I can describe it. Yeah, at least for this one evidence type that they were working with, this very, okay. very generic thing. They kept it very simple at first, but the, the what they were beginning to find was once they were able to break it down into all this, any math nerds listening, break it down to eigenvalues and all these different multi-component vectors, right. once they are able to do that, they could then begin to go, okay, for this kind of evidence, the li- the true likelihood ratio is made up of intrasource variability as well as intersource variability. This other thing, the angle is important. Uh, this movement here is important. This distortion thing. And so they would just keep figuring out which components matter because maybe, for example, footwear, a likelihood ratio for footwear maybe doesn't need a movement factor because it doesn't stretch or distort like skin, but it right. does need maybe a noise factor to it. So oh, they're, okay. what they were they were really trying to understand what is a true likelihood ratio for this evidence, not some artificial score based approach, which works. I mean, it's one way of doing it. But as I learned from all these different models, you start to see, oh, so that's how they came up with the score based approach right. for that. Oh, oh, well, that's not bad, but. I now see why Cedric is so enthusiastic to abandon that approach and truly try to figure out what a real likelihood ratio is for this. Does that kind of make sense? Instead of using yeah. an artificial sim uh, an artificial simulation of what the likelihood ratio is, using the data to draw out mathematically what the true vectors and components of a likelihood ratio are. That's. I'm sure if any of them are listening, they're probably laughing their ass off now how terribly <laughs> I just explained that. That's the best I can do, man. That was some high-end math I was I was sleeping through. Right. Um, yeah, I, I. that's interesting. So one of the things that always has jumped out at me from, this is going back to Cedric's you know, big first paper uh, for, that he published with the Royal Statistical Society. Yeah is okay yes that that graph of the likelihood ratios you know as you add more minutiae the score goes up mm-hmm. which you know every you know latent print examiner is like good that's what it should be doing but if you break it apart into the numerator and denominator for the numerator which is the you know the part of the score uh uh, the distortion of, part, right? The distortion part of how closely the the actual the the latent and the quote unquote actual match. If you go with the prosecutor's um, uh, hypothesis, the the scores as you add more minutia, those scores go down, and that's and I understand why. It's because as you add in more minutia, you have more chance for more distortion. You know, a little bit here, a little bit there. Uh, and it makes the scores get worse as you add in more minutia. But it always has seemed like if you really kind of got down to what it should be doing, that should be going up as you add in more minutia. Hmm. Um, yeah, I I don't know enough about that to have a comment there. I don't. I I mean, I'm taking your word that that, that they do go down with more minutia, but I. I don't know. All I know is it, it is like you said, though. It's um, 
if they were fo- complete photocopies of one another, then the probability is one. I mean, if they right. truly are just copies of one right. another. So the closer they look in appearance, right, Yeah, the higher that probability is. But it would seem that there would have to be a tipping point at some point where you kept throwing on more minutia that, that should – the overall effect should be it's getting closer to one. But I – I, I don't know enough about that. I just don't. So, and I get it. That's that's the distortion component of it. But, you know, breaking it down further, not just as, okay, let's just measure distortion as the numerator, but as the prosecutor's hypothesis, um, the probability that the pr- prosecutor's hypothesis is correct, just in my head, it, it, it just... Mm feels like no. it should go up when you add in more minutiae. Yeah, I, and, boy, I, we'll have to probably cover this in another paper, but I, I know if, if any of them are listening, they will jump on that statement. You, where you, 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 there was just a transpose conditional, but we'll we'll move on from that. Oh, but, sorry. But, I, um, you know what I mean. <laughs> just take it as... No, as, I, I, I know. I know. It just, I, I saw so many people got yelled at at the conference for, for doing exactly that. Myself included. But you, okay, everyone out there, that, yes, okay, fine. But you know what I meant, okay? Just go with absolutely. that. Absolutely. It's a- late. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, but, so, I, I'm definitely curious to see if approaching it in this new way where they're trying to you know, find some other, something besides a score, some other formula or whatever eigenvalue thing. If, if that can actually be representative of the score going up for that, uh, that numerator, um, I don't know. It's one of those things where it's, it's like just gut feeling that that's what should be happening. Um, and, and, you know, it was one of the few surprises in that paper. Of all the other things from that paper where it was like, hey, more minutia is better. Okay, yep. Um, you know. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, see, the, the thing here, Eric, is that that score, this, let's say the score-based approach here, you know, that represents a whole bunch of different things going on with, let's just say, distortion, for example. Right. That's the that's the nice thing about this approach that Cedric is working on is, okay, well, within that one score, let's take that one thing and break it up. And, oh, well, it turns out that what we mean by distortion is um, – you got this, and you know we've got the how how close are they in position? Oh, and what's the angle differences, and what's right. the maximum stretching effect? So it starts right. breaking that down to see okay, when those numbers are being affected, what is the thing that's affecting it? As opposed to well, the scores are just moving all together, or the you know the scores are um, just one single metric for the whole thing of distortion let's break that down into its individual components and see what one thing is responsible for the phenomenon you're describing that's what's kind of cool about it maybe there's one thing that's overpowering another term one term at some higher level as you add more minutia overpowers the other vector and then you end up with now a score that's dropping when like you said it should be going up right it's funny. Part of me thinks that that uh, you know some of these big APHIS companies have already kind of figured all this stuff out, but mm. they they can't like you know yeah. release any of it or share it yeah. because 
then you know it's proprietary information and and they're just like all right you know you you're just we're just going to use this to find the match um and uh you know all all of us practitioners and academia and statisticians that are working for universities um are 20 years behind uh these actual aphis companies yeah uh, yeah but what do you, i mean I, I don't know any other way around that <laughs> Uh, unless one of them decides just to be like, all right, here is, you know, here's a new product that does this. Um, and, but they're just so much more tied to the bottom line of, um, offering what people will pay for. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it just, uh, I, I think that that is a good home for these kinds of things. I think APHIS is the right place. I just think that our APHIS vendors are for the most part, not looking at these kinds of tools they don't realize the need for them and they focus just solely on the searching stuff but not necessarily on the measurement aspect of likelihood ratios that will be useful for us down the road and in court if uh, they should become required at some point or at least necessary and i think it's it's really you know also that that product thing i mean how many agencies are are going to pay you know, a million dollars to, uh, to purchase this, you know, software that does this, um, a million dollars, you know, ish. Do you, you, I mean, you don't mean an add on, you mean a new system, a whole brand new system. Right. Right. As a, cause I mean, that's, they're selling these multi-million dollar APHIS systems to, to agencies. Um, and you know, I mean, I've said it before. It, it's to, it's for the the guys who carry guns to figure out who they have in handcuffs. That's why these things exist. That's who pays millions of dollars for each one of these systems. Well, um, yeah, that's certainly yes, certainly driving the market. But I mean, to be fair, I mean, I think there are some vendors who might be looking at software upgrades as opposed to a whole new system. You know, I mean, there might be reasonable ways to do this, or who knows, even a standalone system. I mean, if it's not right. out of the question. Uh, but it, you know, it, in, unless they see the demand, um, or see the or demand, or he, maybe we should be demanding of this from them. Maybe we should be going Absolutely. to these conferences and saying, "Hey, why don't you guys have a statistical model? You guys use statistics all the time. Why don't you guys have one?" So that when I get a hit back from my APHIS, I can just hit button and then get a likelihood ratio. We could be asking these vendors and should be asking these vendors to put that tool in there. Yeah. Um, oh, 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 now, now you got me going. And <laughs> furthermore, these vendors have quality maps in, in, their, in their running in the background because they're able to assess the quality of minutia. Yep. We should be asking to see those. I know for a fact that there are vendors that when you plug in minutia – it will rate the minutia differently, and when it searches them, based on its assessment of the quality in that region, if it determines it's a lower quality, it will put lower confidence to that feature and less weight in the search function. It's, it, it has a quality map running in the background, and you're not even aware of it. Why don't those vendors make that a more useful tool for us, the user? Absolutely. We should be asking for it. Uh, oh it, yeah, I mean even I mean imagine doing an analysis where uh, you know basically if if the APHIS system can find the minutia based on autocoding, 
then it basically it's a green point. And then the things that yeah. you kind of have to pick out uh, is, you know, yellow and stuff you're not sure about red. But, um, I mean, there's all sorts of ways to do it. But again, you know, a couple of years ago, I went through this whole thing. There are plenty of improvements that they can make to their product. They're not going to do a single one of them unless it's either A, in the contract, um, you know, that, that they sign before you know, in before all the work starts, um, or unless, you know, an improvement that uh, all of their customers uh, are demanding. And even then, they're probably still not going to do it. Uh, <laughs> as long as it meets the conditions of the contract, um, that's, that's really all they care about. And, you know, either further kind of reducing our position no latent print, no crime lab is paying for an APHIS system. Uh, I mean, it, virtually no crime lab has an APHIS system. It is all the 10-print side, the sworn side, uh, the police agency that's paying for these things. So they do what the people with the money say, and that's not us. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I, I will say there were lots of other little presentations uh, that I got to flit in and about, and lots of cool things about uh, hierarchy of propositions, activity. You know, it's not about the source, but you know what the person did or how the evidence got there. Yes, this is you know there. This is a match to their DNA profile, but. Uh, did this stain get there through uh, contamination? Did it get there through, you know, um, non-consensual sexual activity or consensual you know, activity? Right. I mean, all kinds of interesting questions around activity, combining evidence, lots of really, really amazing stuff. Firearms stuff that's coming out, uh, plenty, plenty, plenty more. And I think that Again, all the kind of stuff that I saw there. I likely won't be seeing this for some time, though. I think it'll be uh, at least a few years before we get to any of this uh, kind of research or models that will be available. So this is all futuristic. The future is, is coming fast. So um, hopefully we can all be ready for it. And uh, hopefully it takes us in, uh, in a, a useful way. direction. Yeah, useful, but, you know, in a way that that's also, like like we talked about last episode, understandable to a jury uh, that combines different ways of describing the evidence and the significance of it so that they can make a, uh, a better decision with all that information than, uh, than they have now with, with what we have now. Sure. Hey, you know, I'm going to say one more thing, too. Um, sure. I'm, a, sh a shout out to William Morris from the UK. Uh, Will Morris had come over here for this conference. He's a fingerprint examiner there. And I, I met him a couple of years ago in Scotland at a fingerprint society conference. He was here for this conference. He brought me a bottle of Tullabardine. It's a Scottish whiskey. And it was delicious. Absolutely <laughs> delicious. So I wanted to just uh, give a little shout out for William and say, hey, it was nice to see you, and I hope you enjoyed the conference. Awesome. Uh, sounds fantastic. All right. Well, um, 
you mentioned last time, so I wanted to remind everybody that you've got that uh, class through Ron Smith and Associates uh, coming up in April. Uh, April of 2018, yes. Yep, in uh, Orlando. So get your Area. get your Epcot, get your Harry Potter world, and get your fingerprint Ooh. fix all at the same time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sounds like a, a fun spring break to me, all right. Um, <laughs> it does. <laughs> uh or, you know, um, or and, because you can do both, um, you know, December uh, in Kansas. Um, <laughs> Sounding good. Also fun place to be, uh, mainly because I'm going to be there. Um, uh, so, you know, look that up as well. Um, anyway, uh, go to EliteForensicServices.com for more information or email Glenn at Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com. Go to rayforensics.com or email me, eric, at rayforensics.com. Listen to us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes. Give us the ratings. Um, we want to be the next big thing. We want, we want uh, uh, serial kind of numbers uh, coming out of uh, the podcast world. Um, not after talking about statistics, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're, we're 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 the leading edge of the sword. We're we're the, the point of the sword of the of the of the trend trend line. Um, yeah, we should be lucky if there are two people still left listening to this episode. Uh, so we want to hear from those two people. Uh, email us in, give us those ratings. Uh, let us know uh, what you think of the W podcast uh, and uh, and any questions or comments or topics that uh, you want us to talk about. The opinions expressed on this show are those of myself and Glenn and not of anybody else or any agency. And with that, we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.